Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 74, and we're going to do another Hebrews in toto today, as we have before, without getting caught in the real slow going of the exegesis. Sometimes that can be a little grueling, so I want to deal with a concept called faith, pistis in the Greek. It's defined in Hebrews 11.1. Various forms of it are used all over the place in Hebrews, with, with the, especially, of course, in Hebrews 11, but also in Hebrews 12, where we learn that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. So let's take a couple moments, wherever and whenever this is being proclaimed, and Address the Father in prayer. And Father, we do thank you for opportunity after opportunity that you afford us to receive the engrafted, the implanted word, which once it's implanted in our soul has the power to preserve, to deliver, to strengthen us with might in the inner person. And thank you that we do this together as an assembly of believers, and so we entrust ourselves to you for the reception of your word and for its powerful and creative application in lives that bring glory and honor to your Son. We ask it in his name, amen. As I said, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. He showed what faith is. Yes, he was faithful to his father, but he was also intensely aware of what and who his unseen father is, and of what and who is unreal to so many, but so very real to himself. Unreal, in fact, especially to those with a religious authority and heirs of piety whom he confronted along the course of fulfilling a divine mission. The opposition against him was sustained and consistent and fierce. Jesus is the faithful priest whom God raised up, according to the prophecy of the unnamed man of God in 1 Samuel 2.35. But who is the faithful house, as 1 Samuel 2.35 or 1 Reigns in the Septuagint also said and predicted? Who is the faithful house that God is establishing for him, his faithful priest? The answer, the house that God is building for him is the house of faith. And then again, that correlates with Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. The house of faithful, the faithful house, is the house of faith. It's a household whose primary characteristic is faith, a faith that works by love, as Galatians 5, 6 describes it, a faith that is in reality the reality of things hoped for. It's a faith that manifests Jesus. 
Jesus acted in obedience to his father by seeing his father. Now, we have to get the sense of just what that means to see his father because that'll give us the whole sense of why we're doing this series called We See Jesus. He saw his father. Jesus said this, and this is such an extraordinary verse, John 5:19. The son is not able to do anything by himself. but only what he sees his father doing. That's a remarkable statement. The son is not able to do anything by himself, but only what he sees his father doing. Now, analogous to this in a very rough analogy, I can say that, and you can believe it or not, but I can say I have a strong work ethic because I saw my father working hard all while growing up. I saw my father working hard. He worked three jobs to provide for our mom and for us four kids. So I could say, if I work hard even today, if I do, and nobody knows but the Lord, I guess, and maybe me, if I work hard enough, and I'm working hard today studying and teaching, as the scripture tells me to do, if I work hard, it's partly at least because I saw my father working hard in his day. Now, of course, that's not the whole story. We don't work hard just because we've seen our fathers work hard. Because in the case of serving God, it's God who motivates and energizes us. God who motivates and energizes me. But I'm using an analogy. I have a strong work ethic because I saw my father work. And I saw him work hard. So this is a kind of way to help you understand what Jesus said when he said, I don't do anything by myself. I only do what I see my father doing. Now, if you consider his trek to the cross, that has some remarkable implications. Jesus' fidelity and faithfulness to his father. And this is one of the points I want to make because, again, the whole of Hebrews, Hebrews and Toto, is rooted in some of these things I'm saying in the last message and this message about faith. Jesus' fidelity and faithfulness to his Father was never disconnected from Jesus seeing his Father, who is invisible to all others. He was also always... Seeing the one whom no man sees and lives. No man has seen God's face or God in his real essence and lived. No man sees God and lives. But Jesus, the only eternally begotten of God, reveals him, exegetes him literally. So Jesus saw his father his eternal, unbegotten begetter. 
throughout the days of his flesh. That's a term that Hebrews 5.7 uses for Jesus' time on earth. The son saw the father. You say, no man has ever seen the father and lived. Well, the son who saw the father died. The son who saw the father did not live, but died and then lived again for everyone. He tasted death for everyone so that we, with purified hearts, could see God. The hearts are purified by faith. Acts 15, 9. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know the rest of it. For they will see God. He tasted death for everyone so that we, with purified hearts, could see God see him and live. The son does what he sees his father doing. Now that speaks to us in a very specific way. We see Jesus is the whole theme of our present study. Now in our 74th increment. Seeing him by faith leads to doing what we see him doing. We don't ask, what would Jesus do? We do what we see him doing. We see him trusting his father, even as we learned. I will trust in you, he says in Psalm 22. We see him trusting his father. We see him loving his father and loving people with self-sacrificing love. Eventually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will do what we see Jesus doing. He laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay our lives down for the brethren, says 1 John 3.16. And again, that's not just a moral imperative. He did that, we ought to do it. No, he did that. We see him doing that. We do that. So, we see Jesus. We participate, therefore, in his faithfulness. Now we see him, if we pay attention clearly in Hebrews, we see him interceding. So we intercede. We do what we see him doing. Now someone may say, and I've said it myself, we believe and then we see. Picking up a strand from the last message. We believe and then we see. But Jesus said this, and listen carefully. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes, it doesn't say believes and then sees, 
It says sees and then believes. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And that means that they may have the life of the coming age that will be consummated in the parousia, the coming of Christ, can have it right now in a meaningful way, in a meaningful measure. Not fully, but yes, have it. And then he said, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the Father's will. When we're raised up on the last day, the life of the coming age that we can have in the present age by believing and in the believing, as we'll see, becomes our life in a consummating fullness. Now it's true. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. But the seeing there in John twenty twenty nine is seeing with the eyes in our head. Just as Thomas, who doubted, saw the risen Jesus and the evidence of the wounds in Jesus' hands and side in John twenty twenty seven. So it was then that Jesus said, you have seen and now believed. He was saying, you've seen with the eyes in your head now, Thomas, and you've believed. He didn't say his faith wasn't valid because he saw with the eyes in his head first. There's just a kind of faith that is, let's say, superior to that kind of faith. Faith precedes seeing with the eyes in our head. So if you're going to say faith must precede seeing, you're right if you mean faith precedes seeing with the eyes in our head. Now I'm using that phrase simply so that I can contrast it with the eyes of our heart. So faith does precede and should precede seeing with the eyes in our head. But faith is not preceded by seeing with the eyes of our heart. In that case, we see the Son, S-O-N, and then believe in him. Now someday, every eye in every head will see him. Revelation 1-7. And they will all believe. We will all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, says Ephesians 4.13. But blessed now, happy now, are those who don't see him with the eyes in their head, but do see Jesus with the eyes of their heart. We see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. Outside the camp where he beckons us to go, Jesus is seen with the eyes of our heart. Outside the camp, as we're going to learn more and more, is outside of ourselves. So the eyes of the heart, I've said it many times, I've pulled that phrase from Paul's apostolic prayer. 
in Ephesians 1.18. So it's not just a goofy phrase I've thought up. He prays, quote, that the eyes of your heart, tus ophthalmus tes cardias, hemon, in the Greek, tus ophthalmus tes cardias, humon, that the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, then he uses the word photizo, as he does in Hebrews 6.4, as, as the author, another author does in Hebrews 6.4 and 10.32. So his prayer is that the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, you would understand what is the hope of his calling. The word calling is the same word he used, that the writer in Hebrews uses in Hebrews 3.1. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. The apostolic prayer is that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to understand what is the hope of his calling. The eyes of the heart, therefore, is the lead concept in that prayer. That's before everything else. That the eyes of your heart be enlightened. That you may understand the hope of your calling. That you may comprehend the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And that you may begin to experience the power, the excessive and extraordinary power that raised Jesus from the dead. That you may experience that power, in other words, as the power that energizes and actuates your own life now in the present. It all begins with the eyes of the heart being enlightened. So we see Jesus is extraordinary for many reasons. Now God our Savior, that's what he's called in the Septuagint of Psalm 94.1. And that's going to be an extraordinary psalm that's going to fit beautifully and splendidly, let's say elegantly, in our upcoming exegesis. So I'm doing something now that's not really taking us away from the exegesis. It's helping us immensely when we get there to understand Hebrews 3, 7b through 11, which is almost a direct quotation. There are, I believe, three slight emendations of the text and they are extraordinarily powerful and important, as we're going to see down the road. I've been tempted to go that way today, but I want to, I'm very focused right here, hyper-focused on faith, and I want to stay that way for the rest of this particular increment. God our Savior, as he's called in Psalm 94.1 of the Septuagint, and that can be compared to 1 Timothy 2.3, where God is called the Savior of all people. God our Savior. He is the Savior of all people, says 1 Timothy 4.10, but especially of those who believe. Now, if God is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe, then believing doesn't get you saved. Because God is the Savior of all people, especially of those that are saved. Not only of those who believe, rather, especially of those who believe not only of those who believe. 
So especially those who believe, by that he means those who believe without seeing with the eyes in their head. As Jesus means it in John 20, 29. Those, that those who believe by seeing with the eyes of their heart before seeing with the eyes in their head are the cadre of people whom Paul calls especially those who are believing. We could even say especially those who are faithful. So God is the Savior of all people of all times, but especially of those who believe, and we could add, having seen with the eyes of the heart. This is the will of my Father, that they may see the Son and believe in him, and that I should raise him up on the last day. So there is a seeing that precedes believing, but it's seeing with the eyes of the heart. For that reason, if I were interceding for a loved one, I wouldn't say, Father, I pray that they'll believe. I would say, Father, open their eyes that they may see the Son. Which will lead to their believing. God is the Savior of all people but especially of those who believe, having seen with the eyes of the heart. Now, here's a Beatles song reference. The fool on the hill sees the world spinning round with the eyes in his head. But we see Jesus and the whole spinning world in his hands. Jesus is said to be faithful over God's house. Hebrews chapter 3. Moses was said to be faithful in all God's house. Among other things, that means of all who were in God's house in Moses' day, Moses was faithful. Maligned, slandered, treated very poorly, abused, threatened, for 40 years, he was faithful in all God's house, while all God's house wasn't so faithful. Moses' fidelity to God was never disengaged from his faith by which he saw the invisible. Now, that's very important. Moses' fidelity to God, even his obedience to God, was never disengaged from his faith by which he saw the invisible. Put a capital I there, invisible. Because that means saw him who was invisible. With him I talk face to face, God says. In Hebrews eleven twenty seven, Moses endured 40 years of abuse and testing because he saw him who was invisible. God is invisible to eyes other than the eyes of faith. Therefore, seeing the invisible 
again Hebrews 11:27, which means incidentally both seeing things unseen and things hoped for and also seeing Jesus himself. In other words, when Moses endured seeing the invisible, Moses saw Jesus with the eyes of his heart and he endured. He persisted in obedience to God because he held in his heart a great respect for the reward. The reward being Christ in Hebrews 11.26. So Moses is viewed as one who chose to suffer reproach with the people of Christ because he had respect for the reward that comes after a lifetime of confidence in God. We don't just choose to suffer. I would never choose to suffer. But we choose to suffer if that's God's will. We choose to do God's will even if it involves suffering. That's more like it. That's more reasonable. That's more intelligent. So Moses chose to experience the reproach of Christ for the people of God because he must have seen in advance, in fact, we were pretty sure that he did, Jesus who entered into glory. And in seeing Jesus, he saw one who entered into glory through a path of suffering. Luke twenty four twenty six to 27 becomes emergent in almost every teaching I've done now for the past several years. Luke 24, 26, and 27 ought not Christ to have suffered like all the prophets said and to enter his glory. So I say Moses must have seen Jesus because the prophets, of which Moses was one, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, they spoke univocally. That means they spoke with one voice, God's voice in them of Christ's suffering and entering into glory. They all did. In one way or another, symbolically, metaphorically, parabolically, prophetically, explicitly sometimes, like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. We see Jesus crowned with glory. But it's the glory that he entered through suffering and death and no other way. So if we take the definition of faith, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, if we take the definition of faith, P-I-S-T-I-S, in the Greek, English letters, looks like this. If we take the definition of faith in Hebrews 11 seriously, and I happen to take it very seriously, then to withdraw from faith or otherwise to reject faith is tantamount to retreating from the very essence of the objects of our hope. For faith is the substance of things hoped for, objectively speaking. Subjectively speaking, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. 
Objectively speaking, in the second part of Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the evidence, the documentation in the scriptures of things not seen or things not yet seen. Subjectively speaking, faith is an inner conviction of those unseen realities. We'll be coming up to Hebrews 11. I'm just kind of anticipating it now. So if we draw back from faith, we draw back from Christ Jesus, who is our hope. We become detached from and aloof to the precious promises by which we become partakers of the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4. These are promises that find their fulfillment only in Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 1.19-21. So therefore, to be faithless is to depart from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief. Hebrews 3.12. Now, faith is related to faithfulness. I hope you'll follow this strand of thinking. Again, this captures Hebrews in toto in the practical sense. Now, faith is related to faithfulness in that faith as the very essence of the hoped-for things motivates us to act faithfully, obediently. Faithfulness and obedience are linked almost as one essential thing in the scriptures toward God. Now, I'll say that again. Now, faith is related to faithfulness in that faith as the very essence of the hoped-for things motivates us to act faithfully, obediently toward God. For example, according to Hebrews 11.7, Noah was warned by God about things as yet unseen. Things unprecedented that had never happened before. And then the second half of 11.7 of Hebrews says, In reverential obedience, he built an ark to deliver his family. So here we have it. He's first warned about things as yet unseen. So he sees by faith with the eyes of the heart unseen things. God's about to destroy the world as it is known then, as it was known then. Unprecedented through a deluge. So in reverential obedience, there is no reverential obedience to build an ark unless he not only saw what was going to happen that was unprecedented by faith, but there was no building of the ark unless he saw the specs of the plan to build the ark, the blueprints. So there was no faithful building of an ark without the warning regarding as yet unseen things. I'm saying that to say this and to teach us this. Faithful action was preceded and then accompanied by faith's perception of the unseen. That is the unseen with the eyes in our head. James tells us that faith by itself without works is dead. 
James 2.17. It is equally true, however, that works by themselves without the inspiration of faith are dead too. Dead as a doornail. They are called dead works in Hebrews 6.2 and Hebrews 9.14, both places. Our constant conscience should be purified from ever having to do dead works. An example of a dead work. I did a bad thing. I'm guilty. I will go out and do many good things to assuage my conscience. No. The blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience from the need to do good works. Accept forgiveness from him. And go on and you'll have a life full of good works. It's true that Noah's faith perception wasn't much good alone. And by itself. It required faithful action. But it's equally true that Noah's action and building an ark, imagine if he did that without the perception of faith, he would have been mad. That would have been madness. If it weren't for what or whom the eyes of his heart saw by faith. So in order to depart from faithfulness, we'd have to depart from the very reality of what we hope for. We'd have to first deny that what the eyes of our heart see by faith, we don't really see. We see Jesus. Now Paul, again, concurs in profound ways with the direction and general feeling of Hebrews. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, he went into a very long admonition drawn from the negative paradigm of the faithful, faithless Exodus generation in the desert. That generation saw with the eyes in their head the living God's works. But they still departed from him with an evil heart of unbelief. They saw his works, as we're going to see, but they did not know or understand his ways. They didn't understand the way, and Jesus is the way. Now again, for a rough analogy, we may object when someone who's driving us somewhere takes an unexpected right turn. While the driver knows a way to our destination that we don't know. We, he knows a way that we don't know. So he takes a right that we don't think he needs to take and shouldn't take. And it might even cause us to panic. Well, God knows the way. And he might take some turns in your life that you didn't expect. And you might want to complain about it. So we may object when someone who's driving knows a way to our destination that we don't know and takes a turn that we don't think he should have taken, but he knows the way. We don't know the way that he knows. So Paul knew that walking by faith in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 entailed seeing. It meant, you see, he didn't say just walk by faith. 
Verses before, in fact, in the chapter that climaxed in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, he said, while we look, and the word scopeo means concentrate the eyes of our heart on things that are not seen, things that are eternal, that are abiding, that are age-abiding, and not just transient or evanescent. So he knew that walking by faith entailed seeing and focusing on the things that are unseen, which are things of eternal value. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, we now live in an age where there is actually an ideology at work in our own country that does not hold truth, truth to be a value at all. And that does not hold itself in its conscience against any action whatsoever because of the belief that whatever they do up to lying, propaganda, murder, thievery, all, in fact, even genocide has no negative conscientious value to them because they believe in their delusion that what they're striving for is a utopia and a glory that's so great that that end justifies any means. So it's, it's, a, it's a very perilous time when we live when ideologues reject the value of truth itself. But for the scriptures, for the apostles... For the faithful, truth has the ultimate value. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's something that's quoted all the time by people who don't know what they're talking about. The truth that he's speaking about is the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. So Paul knew that walking by faith entailed seeing and focusing on things that are unseen, things of eternal value. In other words, Paul knew God's ways. Faith is God's way for us to walk. So back to 1 Samuel or 1 Reigns 2.35, which I find to have a sustained influence throughout much of this homily, if not all the way to the end. Yahweh says, the God of Israel says, I will build him, my faithful priest, whom I raise up that is, from the dead, I will build him a faithful house. Consequently, we show ourselves to be his house by faithfulness. But this faithfulness cannot be divorced from faith as the presence with us of future world and a heavenly polis or a heavenly city. The presence of Jesus is the essence of future world with us. For a contrast to the faithful house, therefore, the pastor teacher or the pastor theologian, the PT, the homilist who wrote Hebrews, brings to bear the history of a faithless generation as a negative incentive for his audience. The positive incentive deriving from what he calls a great cloud of witnesses, faithful witnesses, in Hebrews 11, 4 to 40, which then leads us to look away even from them <coughs> to Jesus, the author and completer of faith.
completer of faith. It's all about completion, Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Jesus, who persevered through the fierce and even murderous opposition of men controlled by sin, and then endured the unspeakable ordeal of the cross. <coughs> Why? Because he saw his father and anticipated his reunion with him in glory and anticipated the bringing in of countless sons and daughters with him to glory. So I've said this today so that you won't get bogged down in the slow going of exegesis if you're following increment by increment, and there are a few who are. I've said all this today so that you won't get bogged down in the slog, the slow going of exegesis without seeing the big picture, without seeing what the spirit of grace is doing, what he's going for in the whole homily, which has been brought through a PT over whom the spirit had a liberating control. Second Corinthians 3.17 If we become faithless, God our Savior will still be faithful. He'll save us all right. But we will miss the extraordinary and as yet undescribed blessing and blessedness of continuing in faith, of not discarding our confidence, of persevering with the perseverance of Jesus. If you match Hebrews 10.36 with Revelation 1.9, you get the point, and Revelation 3.10. Kevin McCruden has written that in Hebrews, quote, the author conceives of this destiny of glory as the reward for the faithful who endure persecution. What about that? I never read a commentary and say, well, let me just report that on face value. I say, is that really true? Onset, is that really true? Well, I have no problem with the idea of a destiny of glory for the faithful who endure persecution. The reason I don't is because Jesus himself said, blessed. And that's blessed with a happiness that is a sharing of divine joy. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That is, because you're associated with the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Look, he says, your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. Because this is the way their ancestors treated the prophets. That's Luke 6, 22 and 23. You ought to pay attention to that verse for a while. Think about that for a couple hours. Take a break from the news. 
In Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom from the heavens. Now, righteousness there can be because you are participating in the saving action of God, but could also mean that you have chosen a course of moral action that is highly unpopular in your time. There are many people who vote for people who they perceive will preserve their lusts to do things that are prohibited by God. And so you may be persecuted for righteousness' sake for any number of reasons. And if you are, yours is the kingdom from the heavens. He says theirs is, present tense, theirs is the kingdom from the heavens. That's how I would translate that. The kingdom from the heavens is theirs now. Faith, fidelity, and faithfulness means a foretaste of the experience of future world even now in this evil age. Now, Kevin McCruden also wrote, in addition to the previous quote, this, The essential reason, therefore, why the author can affirm in 3.3 of Hebrews that Jesus is deserving of greater glory than Moses is because he understands the liberation brought by the Son to be qualitatively superior. It is nothing less than the liberation of a heavenly destiny, 3.1, conceived of metaphysically as rest. In 311, 318, 4-1, 4-3, 4-5, and 4-10. That gives you a kind of a sense of where we're going. Now, as I close today, I want to revert to, or I don't want to say revert, but resort once again to John's Gospel. We came to Hebrews through many different other studies, including the fourth G. In John's Gospel, believing, pistuo, the verb form, P-I-S-T-E-U-O, pistuo. Believing people are said to, quote, have the life of the age. John 3.15, 3.16, 3.36, 5.24, and 20.31 of John. That means the age which has come with Jesus and will be consummated when he comes a second time. For those of you that doubt he's coming again, Read Hebrews 9.28. He's coming a second time. You can compare that with John 21.22-23, where Jesus says, until I come. And in 1 Corinthians 11.26, where Paul says, until I come. And in 1 Corinthians 15.25. In Romans, which we also studied as entitled, Reading Romans with the Light On, Romans the Epistle, in the very last verse of the main body of that epistle, and that last verse of the main body of the epistle, before Paul does some exhortations, some closing exhortations, that's Romans fifteen thirteen. So in many ways, it's a climactic verse of the exposition of Romans. The apostle gives this benediction. Now may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing. 
so that you may overflow with a communicable hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So joy and peace in believing. As John's Gospel says, the believing means the experience even now of the life of the age to come. So Romans imparts the efficacious wish, a benediction sometimes is an effective wish, it'll come true, that the readers will experience great joy and peace in the believing or in the having of faith. Joy and peace are components of the present experience of the kingdom of God. If you put Romans 15, 13 with Romans 14, 17, and 18, according to Romans 14, 17, the, right, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Consequently, in a penultimate verse in Romans, believing is essential to the experience of the kingdom of God even now. Likewise, in a penultimately significant pair of verses, which states the entire purpose of the writing of the fourth gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author, says this in John 20, 30 and 31. Indeed, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written first so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and second, so that believing you would have life in his name. John is written so that you would see Jesus, and seeing, believe in him. And believing in him, have the experience of the life of the coming age in spite of everything that's going on in this age. So in Hebrews, faith, faithfulness, is essential for pleasing God. And for the present foretaste of future world, you got to have faith. Oranopolis, the heavenly city, to experience it in some measure in the present means faith. In all of these cases, believing is not, listen carefully, in all of these cases, believing is not touted as a human means for justification. But rather, as the divinely energized and gifted means for the experience of the age to come even now, in spite of everything in the present evil age. So we can see with the eyes of our heart by all of this, that believing, or faith, pistis, is an essential, listen carefully, if not the essential dynamic of genuine spirituality. We can also see a little more clearly what it means when the scripture says that God our Savior is the Savior of all human beings, especially of those who are believing. 
that is of those who have faith, because those who have faith are of the cadre of, of a saved and universally justified humanity who are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, one Jesus Christ, who are reigning in life through him even now and who will reign together with him in future world. This understanding of faith, listen carefully, because this is where we've made a pretty quantum leap forward in the doctrine, the history of doctrine of the church. This understanding of faith is both a rebuke to the widely held doctrine of justification by one's individual faith, and at the same time, it's a correction of the notion that faith is somehow not important. On the other hand, far from being unimportant, faith is the substance of hoped-for reality. Estende pistis el pisomenon hypostasis. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And without it, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, in other words, it is impossible to be faithful to God. The majority of a certain generation whom the Lord saved from a life of slavery in the land of Egypt subsequently perished in the desert because of unbelief. That generation became a paradigm of not believing in the Son and of remaining under the wrath of God who excluded them from the rest and the inheritance of Canaan, the promised land. That's all for today. Give you the sense of faith, which is a sense that encompasses and goes throughout Hebrews in toto. Father, we thank you, and we pray that you will gift us with a faith that leads us to faithfulness and to your pleasure. And we thank you that it is God in us who is both willing and doing of that which pleases you. So help us in such a time as this not to be afraid, but only to believe. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.